Well, I copied 50 children's notes. So, I'll start copying more so we don't run out. Because I really want to encourage the children to take these notes. And for some of you adults who like the pictures on the notes, you're more than welcome to, to take them. If this is what helps you, that's great. And so, I'll just, I'll just start copying more. It always takes a, a shortness to realize how much we need to copy. But I'm, I'm grateful for the kids and their attentive eagerness. <clears throat> you know, after the service, I always meet over here with the kids. And adults, you would be surprised at how well the kids do. And sometimes I, I go through these notes and ask them questions. And they know what's going on. And it's a sad commentary in this world where many churches will have the students be out until maybe they're in high school. They're learning an immense amount here in the... In the Word, I preach. That's what they learn. So I want to commend you kids. And I have a lot to talk about today, kids. So you just need to bear with us. And always when we have the children's church children in here, it is always um, wonderful. They pay attention very, very well. It seems like I always have a long sermon on that day. So that's how it is. We're trying to train them, right? Well, uh, as you know, at Rock Valley Bible Church, we have been going through the Gospel of Matthew. And um, had an interesting time this week. I went to the jail with um, Philip Del Rey. Had a, had a great time. And Phil got done preaching. He said, well, i got 20 minutes left. you guys want to say something? And so I said, well, why not? I preached last week what I preached to you this week. But one of the things I said as I started, I said, you know, we've been going through Matthew at our church that I pastor in verse by verse. And it's taken us about four years and you would not believe the expression of these guys and the inmates of the jail. They went... <coughs> hey, Doug, uh, Doug's not here. He was there with me as well. They're like, four years! How could you do that? And I said, well, there's some faithful people. They come in week in, week out. And you know, we just open it and take the next section. And I trust that you have seen the benefit in expositing through the Scriptures just slowly like that. Just to savor it, to take it in. Well, we've come to the the sufferings and the death, the burial and the resurrection of Christ. And rather than just moving right on to the resurrection accounts or trying to deny that, which we will next week, again, I wanted to step back and say, let's look at the cross. Let's look at the cross of Christ because this is the pinnacle of history. From God's perspective, when He looks down upon earth, He looks down upon earth B.C. and A.D. That's not a human invention. That is God's plan. B.C., before Christ, when sins were committed, God just covered them over with sacrifices. He just overlooked them, as Romans chapter 3 says. He knew that there would be a time when Christ would come upon the cross and those sins that were committed to the people who believed would be born upon Christ. At that time. So when God dealt with the world before Jesus came, He dealt with it by overlooking transgression, passing it over. And then Christ came, died upon the cross, the pinnacle of history. And now we live today, A.D. What is it? Anno Domini, right? The year of our Lord, right? We now live after the cross. And our sins for those of us who believe, we're placed right there upon that cross. And God deals with us differently now. God deals with us, say, when we sin, He looks down upon us. He doesn't have to cover it over anymore. He said, I nailed it to the cross of Christ. 
It's the pinnacle of history. It causes us time to stop and reflect. Last week, I preached a message about how central the cross is. I, I took four key verses and focused our heart's attention upon just each of those verses. The first point, believe in the cross. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. <clears throat> believe in the cross. The centrality of the cross, that is what we have to believe to be saved. We have to believe in the cross. Paul said this, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. That's of utmost importance. The centrality of our message is this, we preach Christ, right? Crucified and you need to believe in Him. Second, boast in the cross. Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. May it never be that I should boast, Paul says, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing that we can boast about before men. People are always stronger. People are always richer. People are always smarter than all of us. And before God, we're nothing. We're dust. We're zero. But before God, we can boast in the cross of Christ. And if we can boast before God in the cross, we can boast before men in the cross. And Paul tells us to boast only in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's how central it is. All of our boasting, all of our joy, all of our talk should be centered on the cross. Third point, preach the cross. When Paul came to Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, he said, this is my message. We preach Christ crucified. In fact, he even said in chapter 2, verse 2 of 1 Corinthians, he says, Are you determined to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified? Right? The death of Christ was so central that that's what continued to come out of his mouth. To the Corinthians before they were saved and after they were saved. To the church, constant message is Christ crucified. We need to hear that as well. And then Paul writing to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. The man that he trained in the faith, he says, Okay, Timothy, there's one thing you have to remember. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Remember the cross. And our daily tendency is to forget the cross. And we need to remember it. That was my sermon last week. Four points, four verses. We took each verse, kind of went in some depth of that. Today's going to be different. I'm not going to take four verses and go deep. I'm going to take the New Testament and go broad. My text this morning is the New Testament. And I want to show you how the New Testament interprets the life of Christ and applies the life of Christ for us. Particularly for us who believe. Okay? We talked about the importance of believing last week. This week we're going to talk about, you know what, for us believers, for us in the church, why do we need to hear the message of the cross? And you're going to be amazed. And what I want you to do, here's my aim this morning. I want you to be overwhelmed with the number of Scriptures that speak about the cross and Christ crucified. I want you to be overwhelmed with how many applications Paul explicitly writes back to the fact that Jesus died or suffered for us or loved us or gave Himself for us or rose again or rejoined ourselves to them. I want you to see over and over and over and over and over and over again how often it's the cross that has implications about where we live. Doug Sosnowski's got notes. If you want some more notes, just raise your hand. Doug will just walk around. I want you to be amazed with that. So today, we're not going to go deep in the verses. We're going to go broad and we're going to catch the spectrum. What I try to do is try to go through the New Testament and pick up verses and passages of Scripture that just speak to this and kind of summarize it as best I could. I summarize it into six different applications. But that's just touching the surface. I'm sure there are many more that I forgot. I'm sure there are many more that you could probably find. But I can't preach everything in the New Testament. We're just going to broad summarize everything. So here's my first point. What the cross calls us to do. The cross calls us to live a new way. 
I turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 shows of how we need to live a new way in light of the cross. I know that Gordy read this whole chapter because I asked him to. I want to read the first 11 verses for you again to get it in your mind. And as I read it, I want you to read it with respect to um, thinking about the implications of the death of Christ and the life which we now live. Doug, I think we need one more over here. It would help. The Del Reyes. I want you to think about the implications of the death of Christ and the life which we live. Because Paul links our lives right with the cross of Christ, both in His death and His resurrection. We've experienced that together with Him. And thus, we need to live differently. We need to live a new life. Romans 6. <clears throat> What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? See the sharing there? Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead, To the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for He who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with Him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin. Once for all, but the life that He lives, He lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Here it is. Time and time again, Paul links our lives with the cross of Christ. In verse 2, In Christ's death, we have died to sin. In verse 3, We have been baptized into His death. In verse 4, we have been buried with Jesus. In verse 5, we have united in His death. In verse 6, it's our old self was crucified with Him. We have died to Christ. In verse 8, and as a result of participating in the death of Christ, so too are we to participate in the life of Christ through His resurrection. Right? Verse 4, as Christ was raised from the dead, so also we might... Walk in newness of life. Right? We ought to walk as live people, as new people. Our old self was crucified. Why? Verse 6, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. See, we've been crucified, so we're no longer a slave to sin. We can live righteously. Verse 7, since we've died with Christ, we're free from sin. Verse 8, since we've died with Christ, we shall also live with Him. As death and sin no longer have mastery over Christ... Death and sin no longer have mastery over us. We ought, verse 11, to consider ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Right? Do you see the thrust of his argument? This all comes from the cross. It comes by faith in our participation in what took place at Calvary 2,000 years ago. As believers in Christ, we become partakers in Christ. When He died, we died to sin. And when He was raised from the dead, we're raised to live a new way. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says it this way, We read that if any man is in Christ, right? He believes the Gospel. He trusts the Gospel. And it says thereby he is in Christ, meaning he's been clothed with his righteousness. If any man is in Christ, 
He's a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. Right? It's a, it's a new life. It's different in Christ. 1 Peter 2.24 He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He bore our sins so that we should die to sin and live to righteousness. Galatians 6.14 Through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I've been crucified to the world. Right? I no longer am a slave to those passions any longer. In Galatians 2.20 I've been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. I mean, you think about applications, they abound. He says this, First Galatians 2.20, It's no longer I who live, but with this connection now, Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, because we do live in the flesh, right? We have flesh and blood. But the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. A belief in the cross compels us to live a new way. That's Paul's argument, verses 12, 13, and 14. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust. Do not go on presenting the members of your body as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be mastery over you, for you're not under law, but you're under grace, right? We're not under the condemnation of the law. We're under grace. We're freed. We're, we're with Christ. And therefore, we can leave, live in a new way. And here it is. Belief in the cross is a transforming belief. Do you have this transformation in your life? It's the evidence of saving faith. When you trust in Christ, your connection with Christ will be so much that your life will change and be transformed. Right? Being under grace means that sin no longer dominates your life. You're no longer a slave to that. It says in Titus chapter 2, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men, teaching us to deny ungodliness and unrighteousness and worldly desires. It's the grace of God in Christ that teaches us to live righteously. Verse 13, No longer should you present your members to sin. But if you know this transformation in your life, your members will be presented to God as instruments of righteousness. Verse 13, And so I say, is this evidence to your new life? This is the new life in Christ that believers in Him share in. The application of the cross teaches us to live a new way. Second point, the cross calls us to live with confidence. Turn back to Romans 5. To live with confidence. Boldness. Assurance. Romans 5. I want to read the first 11 verses. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we are still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one man will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. 
But God's different than that, right? God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. I take these passages, this verse and I say, live with confidence before God because you stand by faith justified before God. You stand legally declared righteous before God. You know, the big question in this life isn't whether you are at peace with your God. Many people think they're at peace with God and they're not. The question in this life, is God at peace with you? That's the big question in this life. And through Jesus Christ, we can be at peace with God. And we have no reason to back away from God or to fear His condemnation which is due us. And you know what that does to you in your living? It produces the fact that you can live with confidence. You don't have to live in fear and trembling. See, look at God's love for us. How great it is. Verse 6. Christ died for us while we were helpless. We couldn't help ourselves. So Christ came to help us. But not only while we were helpless, right? Christ died for us while we were sinners. Verse 8. God demonstrates His love toward us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were separated from God due to our sin, the death of Christ removed the separation. Because of His love, He came and did that. Because of the love of God, it's so great towards us that He died for us even when we were His enemies. Right? Look at verse 10. While we were enemies, we were at enmity with God and hated Him. We're at war with Him. That's when He reconciled us to Himself and made us His friends. Now, you think about the implications of what God has done for us in Christ. It's huge. We can stand with confident assurance that God loves us. If He loved us when we were at our worst, certainly He still loves us now, right? If you believe in Christ Jesus this morning, He loved you when you were an enemy. When you hated God, where there's a separation with the sin. And that's when He reconciled you to God by faith in Christ Jesus and now reconciling you. Is He going to let that go? When you were at your worst, God loved you. And if He loved us when we were at our worst, certainly He still loves us now and will continue to love us now. And so we can live with confidence. In Colossians 2, verse 14, we read that God canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us. He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That which, which caused a separation between us and God, God took a big front-end loader and took all of it and put it and dumped it on the cross and so now there's just a, a straight road between us and God. There's like nothing hindering between us because everything's been taken out of the way. We've been nailed to the cross. 1 Peter 2, 24 says that by His wounds we're healed. The writer of Hebrews says that we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ Jesus once for all. Hebrews 10, 10. And as believers in Christ, we stand completely reconciled to God. There's nothing anymore between us and God. Oh, sure, there used to be something, 
There used to be that sin blocking the way, blocking our access to God, but by faith, everything between us is taken out of the way, nailed to the cross, and God now holds nothing against us. We are, as verse 1 says here, at peace with God. And we stand in this grace. By faith is what verse 2 says. And the clear application of this is that we ought to live with confidence, live with boldness, live with assurance. Live your night life knowing that nothing between you and God would cause God to look down upon you with a condemning heart. Because He looks down upon us as if we're Christ. It's the righteousness that we have. You are loved in Christ, right? Christ loved the church. Gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water by the Word, that He might present to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless, right? He loved the church, gave Himself up for the church because of His great love to sanctify us. And through faith in Christ, we're completely sanctified. Positionally. We don't have to live in fear, always trying to please our Heavenly Father, because in Christ... God is perfectly satisfied with us in Him. In Christ, God is perfectly pleased with us. Colossians 2, verse 10, that we are complete in Him. Continuing on in Romans, in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, it says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. God is satisfied completely in Christ. God's love for you is unconditional and this ought to free you up to live with confidence. Now, I want you to think about how you live with your father. Your earthly father. I know some of you had terrible relationships with your dad. Your relationship with your dad was very conditional. If you performed up to his standards, if you received the awards, if you received the grades, if you were the type of friends that would impress him, then your dad would be happy with you. And if that's your image of what God is like, well, if you measure up to my standards, then I'll be happy with you. You've got a wrong view of God. And your view of your father is warping that. God is like the father who loves his son regardless of how well he performs. God is like the Father who communicates His love for His sons in word and actions. God is the one who expresses His love for His Son. And I can tell you in humility, I was fortunate to have a father like this. My dad. When I was a boy growing up, I knew that my dad loved me. And I knew nothing I was doing was going to cause that to diminish. And you know, I was involved in a lot of athletics. A lot of parents can press their child to perform. And press them and press them. You know what? Dad never did that. And I knew that whether I started or was third string sub, I was okay. And think about what that did to my life. It meant that I could go out there with confidence in the world, knowing that if the world rejects me, it's okay. So I got someone else who hasn't rejected me. And that's how it is with God. We can go out in the world and say, you know, the world can reject us. The world can hate us. But we come back in our closets with God. I said, God, you've not rejected me. And I can live with confidence. I don't have to live with this fear of, of trying to, to please Him. That's what 1 John four seventeen and 18 says. By this, love is perfected with us, that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Love is perfected in us, that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. But see, the one who knows the love of God, experiences the love of God, doesn't have the fear of condemnation upon him. And so can live with boldness and confidence. And so I just say this. Do you live with confidence? 
Do you live knowing that all of your sins by faith have been paid for upon the cross of Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing? When you know that, when you know the love of Christ, such living will be with confidence. Third point, the cross calls us to live in a new way, live with confidence here is close to God. Calls us to live close to God. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 4. I've chosen to put this point here because it's really a corollary of the fact that if this separation has been shut down between us and God, it's something we ought to move close and live close to God. Hebrews 4 calls us because of Christ's work on the cross, as Christ has qualified Himself as a high priest to come and live close to God. Hebrews 4, verses 14 to 16. Since then we have a great high priest... And I'll show you in a little bit how when it talks about Jesus being the high priest, it has clear reference to the fact that He he died for us. Right? He's not like the other high priests who need to offer up sins for others. Right? Because He offered up Himself and can plead for us. We have a high priest since we do. He's passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are and yet without sin. And here's where the admonition comes. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Right? Drawing near with confidence. Right? The reason we draw near is because we have a high priest who's been among us. He's one one who's tempted in every way as we have, and he's endured the temptations without ever sinning. So you think about the temptations of Christ. What temptations were there? Well, he's in the wilderness, tempted by Satan, and tempted by the insults of the religious leaders, tempted by his wavering disciples, but the greatest of the temptations that he withstood was the temptations that took him through the cross, knowing full well what was going to take place. He suffered more than any of us ever will, and yet he came through that suffering without sin, And it's that very fact that that Christ is the one who endured the cross without sin that gives Him a great high priest that we ought to feel greatly affectionate upon drawing close to Him. That we might receive, as it says, verse 16, mercy and grace to help in time of need. It says in Hebrews 7, verse 26, it's fitting that we should have a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of his people because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. It's the sacrifice of Christ that qualifies him to be the high priest. It's the sacrifice of Christ that demonstrates he's a worthy high priest because he's gone through many more sufferings than we have and he's gone through victoriously. He can pave the way and he can help you when you're in that way. It's an application of the cross. Draw near. Ephesians 3, verse 12 says that in Christ Jesus we have boldness and confident access through faith in Him. I mean, I want you to think about this. It's through the death of Christ that believers in God have access to the very throne of God. We have the ear of God. Coming before a sovereign is a fearful thing. In fact, that's shown clearly in the book of Esther when even the queen of the land knew that if she came into the inner court of the king uninvited and without him extending his scepter, 
the queen of the land may be put to death. But God says this. He says, you come as often, as much as you like. Come to the throne of grace. I'll receive mercy. You'll receive mercy and grace just to help you in the time of need. And what's amazing about how close God calls us is the fact that we were so distant from Him in the future. In Ephesians 2, it says the Gentiles, who I think are all of us, there may be a Jew among us or two that I don't know about, but we're all Gentiles. It says all Gentiles. We were separated from Christ. We were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. We were strangers to the covenant of promise. We had no hope and without God in the world. We had no hope as Gentiles of a Messiah that would come and rescue us. That promise that I opened up our service with in Jeremiah 31, we couldn't have said back then, <laughs> I'm from Nineveh. Messiah is going to come for me. I'm a Hittite. Messiah is going to come for me. No, no, no. The Messiah was promised to the Jews. We were without Christ. We were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. Even if we were a God-fearer, even if we did all that we could do, we couldn't enter into the temple gates with the Jews. We were excluded from the... We were excluded from the sharing. We couldn't defile that as Gentiles. We're strangers to the covenants of promise. All the covenants, the promises of the Old Testament, were coming to the Jewish people. Now, certainly there was a spillover to the Gentiles. And Gentiles who repeated like the Ninev- repented like the Ninevites received grace and forgiveness. But they weren't to us. It was on top. A covenant's a contract. We had no contract as Gentiles. We only could have received what God just went above and beyond. We had nothing to claim. We were without God, without hope. But Paul says in the very next verse, Ephesians 2, verse 13, In Christ Jesus, you are far off and brought near by the blood of Christ. We now have a claim to the Messiah. We now have a part of the people of God. We have many promises to claim. And it means that we can draw near now to God. Because the cross can we draw near. Peter said, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God. It was a death of Christ that took those who were far off and brought them near. See, God isn't against us. He doesn't hold us at arm's length. He's for us. Hear this. Do you believe and trust in Christ? God is for you. And Paul said, if God is for us, what? Who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, He who gave His Son in sacrifice, how will He not also freely give us all things? In other words, if He gave us the great gift of His Son, how will He not give us all things? Right? Suppose you have an extremely wealthy father, right? Who maybe owns some lake in Minnesota. Owns the whole lake. You know, 50 acre, all these, all these houses. And He gives you that lake. Says, that's yours. The argument is this. Will he not give me a lawnmower to mow the lawn? Will he not give me a basketball to be able to shoot baskets in the basketball court that's there? That's what it is. If God, if he gave us his son, how will he not give us all things? And he gives us those things by drawing near, living close to God. And he says, 1 Peter 5, 7, Cast all your cares upon Him because He cares for you. 
We know that He cares for us because He died for us and we ought to draw near to God. I hope you start seeing how overwhelming just all this application. I'm just, I'm telling you, I'm just scratching the surface of all the New Testament. My fourth point here. Live by faith, not by flesh. Turn over to Galatians chapter 3. Live by faith and not by flesh. The churches in Galatia were under attack. They'd started well in the faith, but they began to entertain some religious experts that came in among them to draw their attention away from simple faith in the sufficiency of the cross into keeping the commandments of God. And they began to trust in their keeping of the commandments rather than trusting in Christ alone. And they started to trust in their flesh rather than trusting in their faith. So Paul says in Galatians 3.1, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does He then who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Even so, Abraham believed God, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now these... Galatian people had clearly heard the message of the Gospel of Christ. That's what verse 1 is about. Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Right? In other words, Paul preached the Gospel, the grace of God, and the cross of Christ to them clearly. He preached clearly that you're, you're saved by grace alone through faith in the cross alone. Certainly, he understood and, and preached everything about justification and redemption. And then verse 2, he asks the obvious. Okay, now, when the Spirit came, did it come by the works? By your faith. And they knew it was hearing by faith. This is a kindergarten question, okay? This is the easy question which leads up to the smasher in verse 3. Okay, here's what I know. If you've begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? The implication is this. Listen, you're saved by faith. You are perfected by faith, you are to live by faith. Their error was they were trying to be perfected by the flesh. Which is wrong. And I tell you, that is your tendency. That is my tendency. It is the constant pull of our lives to try to be perfected by the flesh. As we grow in our Christian lives, we see our lives begin to change and and conform to the image of Christ. Our habits begin to change. The the sinful habits from our old life are being replaced with righteous habits in the new life. And pretty soon we start adding upon righteous things, right? We're consistent in our Bible reading. We attend a flock, right? We're involved in evangelism. We send our children to Awana. We ourselves are memorizing verses. We start praying with consistency. We start reading books that start help our Christian life and pretty soon our Christian life gets packed to the full. We're consumed with the Christian life. And we're so consumed, here's going to happen, you try to add one more thing and you just can't do it. You can't do it anymore. And so all these things which are good things, they're means of grace, become one more thing added and some of these other things start to crumble because you and I only have 24 hours a day. Some of these other things begin to crumble And it's how you respond to missing a meeting or to be three weeks behind in your Bible reading or to to lapse into some sinful habit or maybe to 
to be months since you've witnessed to anybody and, and you find yourself in a church service realizing that, God, I, I see how much that I, I'm supposed to do and can do and, and, and I've only been able to do this much and, in fact, even I've not done quite so much of that and you've got a choice at that moment. You can either try to continue to be perfected in the flesh and try to continue to do more and more and more or you can believe that you're reconciled to God by faith alone. There it is. Live by faith and not by flesh. <clears throat> you can say, God, I'm going to really try harder. I know I've lacked on some things, but I'm going I'm to step it up. I'm going to do these things. And these are good things. I'm not telling you not to do them. But all of our lives are up to here. And, and we just can't do more. And when you can't do more, how do you look at that? When you start thinking that I'm going to make it up, I'm going to try, I'm going to try harder, then you've forgotten the way of Christ. You're seeking to be justified by the law, Galatians 5.4. You've fallen from grace, Galatians 5.4. You've begun to live in the flesh, but you need to live by faith and not by the flesh. And your solution isn't to make a deal with God. Say, let me try harder, God. It's about faith to forgive. It's about faith in Christ who can perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you in your faith. The work of God that you do is believe. Jesus said this in John chapter 6, verse 29, this is the work of God that you believe in the One whom He has sent. In other words, the work of God is the work of believing and trusting the promises of God that were completely justified in the cross of Christ. But if you feel that in any way your acceptance before God is based on your own works, I'm telling you, you're under a curse. That's what verse 10 says in Galatians 3. As many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. It's written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide in all things written in the book of the law to perform them. If you start trying to measure up your Christianity by all these different things you do, all of a sudden you've become a law keeper. If you become a law keeper, you've got to keep it all. As James 2.10 says, You fail in one, you fail in all. That's exactly what this says. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the law. You don't want to walk the path of the flesh. You want to walk the path of faith because that's the only hope you have. The solution is to come to God and say, Lord, you know what? In recent days, the worry of the world has consumed me. I acknowledge the waywardness of my ways. You certainly know the situation in my life, Lord. My struggles I'm having. I don't make any excuses for failing to grow in my sanctification. But I know this, God. I know that I can come to You by faith. I know it's by Your grace through faith that the promises of Christ are applied to my account. I believe that Christ has accomplished redemption for me and I trust that You'll reckon me righteous apart from the works that I am not able to perform. That is walking by faith before God. And having come to Him like that, the church service you find yourself in, freely worship Him knowing that you're forgiven all. And the grace of God, you know what, will work in your life to continue to work out issues of practical purity in your life. But our standard, and I'm going to linger on this point here a little bit because this is, this is like probably our biggest struggle. Our, our struggle, our tendency is to submit ourselves to the standard cultural laws of the Christian culture. Is there a Christian cultural standard out there today? <laughs> there is. All the things you can do and you can't do, right? What we eat, what we drink, what we wear, where we go for entertainment, who we associate with. And our standards may be different, but they're no different in spirit than what Paul faced the Corinthians, the Colossians. Listen to what Paul said to the Colossians. 
Why do you submit yourselves to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to the things that perish with the using in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? Then Colossians 2, verse 23 says, These matters, don't touch, don't taste, don't handle, stay away. Does that sound like the Christian church world? Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. And you know what? Paul says this. It has an appearance of wisdom. Verse 23. These matters, to be sure, have the appearance of wisdom. In self-made religion, self-abasement, severe treatment of the body. But they are no value against fleshly indulgence. doesn't calm the heart. It's an external. And how we love the externals. We love do's and we love don'ts and we love lists and we love comparing ourselves to the lists and see where we are. And we love judging others with that. Oh, do you do this? Do you do that? But Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, Let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or respect to a festival or new moon or Sabbath day. Why? The message of Colossians is that Christ is supreme and in Him you are made complete. He's the one that has all the treasures and by faith in Him you're completely justified. These things don't make you righteous. Live by faith, not by flesh. Now, having said that, that's not to dismiss you or disencourage you to do good works. But remember, you need to know the source of your good works is your salvation. From your salvation will flow those things. You say before God, you stand before Him, the works will flow and they will come and you will take advantage of the means of grace like coming to church, like reading your Bible, like praying, like serving your neighbor. You will do those things, but not out of the flesh. You'll do them by faith and not meritorious. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. By grace you've been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of the works that no one should boast. Right? We're His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Created in Christ for good works. Not good works to merit Christ. It's Christ to do good works. It totally then removes all fleshly living when you live by faith and not by flesh. I have two more. The cross calls us To live as Christ lived. Philippians chapter 2. I talk about living as Christ lived. I talk about following the example that Christ left for us. And I'm telling you, there are many, many passages of Scripture that link the cross of Christ and His example for how we ought to follow. Jesus lived like this. The implication is we need to live like this. Just like Jesus did. That's how we ought to live. Philippians 2. If therefore there's any encouragement in Christ... If there's any consolation of love, there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. There's the link. Don't look out for yourselves. Look out for others. Have the same attitude that Christ did, because that's what He did. He existed in the form of God, verse 6. He didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of man, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. 
The humility of Christ ought to be our humility. His humiliation was shown in the incarnation and shown in the cross of Christ. Humble himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And I just say, who are you to be proud if the Lord of the universe came down to die to take the lowest place among us, coming as a servant to die as a falsely accused prisoner? Where's pride in your life? The example of Christ eliminates pride. It was the humility of Christ that caused him to consider others more important than himself. Paul used this even in issues of Christian liberty in 1 Corinthians 15, 2 and 3, concerned about the welfare of our neighbor. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself. Please your neighbor, not yourself, because that's what Christ did when he came down. He pleased us. He helped us. He didn't just please himself. We need to be considered those who are weak in faith. The cross calls us to follow the example of Christ to seek the well-being of our neighbor. Well, not only are we to follow in the humility of Christ, we're to follow in the suffering of Christ. 1 Peter 2.21 Christ suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in His steps. He suffered, you should suffer. 1 Peter 4.1 Since Christ has also suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves for the same purpose. Since Christ suffered, you get ready to do the same thing. Live after the model of Christ. Right? Jesus said, take up your own cross and follow me. It requires suffering. Right? Jesus Himself took up His cross. And He said, you do just what I do. You follow after me. An application of the cross calls us even more to, to suffer well. Suffer well. Even when suffering without a due cause. You're at work. You're falsely accused. Don't stand up for yourself. Someone comes with accusations against you. Don't defend yourself. Christ didn't defend Himself. While being reviled, He didn't revile in return. He suffered well, even when being accused unjustly. He took those things in. And we're so concerned about our rights. The Lord of the universe didn't demand His rights. Suffer well. We're called to follow in His perseverance. Hebrews 12.3 Consider Him who endured such hostility against Himself by sinners against Himself so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. In other words, think about Jesus who endured all these things in the cross and He endured right until the end. He persevered in these things. So we ought to think about Jesus and follow His example of perseverance. That's what Hebrews 12.3 says. We're called to follow in His forgiveness. Ephesians 4.32 Be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving each other just as God, here it is, in Christ has forgiven you. Where has Christ forgiven you? It's on the cross. What are you to do in return? Forgive others. Follow His example. And now I say, according to what standard are you to forgive other people? According to the standard of the forgiveness of Christ Forgive each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Abundant pardon, open arms, willing to embrace. We're called to follow His love. Humility, suffering, perseverance, forgiveness. Here it is love. 
Ephesians 5 verse 2, Walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. The love of Christ is what motivated Him to offer His self as a sacrifice for our sins. And His love was great. We've already seen in Romans 5 that He loved us when we were helpless, sinful enemies against Him. And that's how we ought to love others. We are to love and sacrifice even for our enemies. That's what He said in the Sermon on the Mount and that's what He acted out on the cross. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. That is an act of love. If we're to love our enemies, husbands, you have to love your best friend. You have to love your wife. Husbands, love your wives. Just as following the example of Christ who loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Love your wives, husbands, just like Christ loved the church, giving Himself up completely. Listen, die for your wives, men. Don't live for your own lust. Die for your wives. Well, the cross calls us to live a new way. Live with confidence. Live close to God. Live by faith, not by flesh. Live as Christ lived. Here's my last one. Live worshipfully. Live worshipfully. And by this, I just tried to combine all those things to talk about being thankful to the cross or being joyful to the cross or, or lifting high cross or, or, or worshiping Christ because He's the crucified one. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. There are many verses in the New Testament that make this connection. What Christ did on the cross, our worship of Him. What Christ did on a cross, our thankfulness to Him. What Christ did on a cross, how we ought to rejoice in Him. How we ought to give thanks and praise and sing praises to His name. Always, throughout the New Testament, lots of that. Ephesians 1, one of the most clear places. Here it is. Blessed be, praise be, give honor and worship to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. You know, all the spiritual blessings that you have, where are they? They're in Christ. They're tied up in the cross. So everything good that we have, we have because of the cross. And every good thing that we have, we ought to give worship and praise to God. And that is as a direct result of the cross. That's an application of the cross. Just as, verse 4, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. Here it is. To the praise of the glory of His grace. Right? What's to the praise of the glory of His grace? That God predestined us from the foundation of the world. That God chose us before the foundation of the world. How did He choose us, by the way? He chose us in Him. He chose us in Christ. It was the cross that was the means through which God chose us. So everything from the foundation of the world, God chose us in the suffering and death and slaughter of His Son. So as you reflect upon the tremendous grace of God in your life, you just say, you know what, God, it was nothing of me. It's not my faith. It's, not, it's all your grace. Cause us to praise God. This cross is at the center of it. To the praise of the glory of His grace. You know, we don't have time. We could flush these things out. Like in verse 12, it talks about by the end of all His redemption, He's accomplished for us, adoption, right? This great mystery that's come. It's all to the praise of His glory, right? We who hope in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. Verse 14, we've got this inheritance through Christ, a view of the redemption of God's own possession, our 
full reconciliation between God. It's for the praise of His glory. The redemptive work of God in Christ causes praise and glory and adoration. Peter said almost the exact same thing in 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Okay, let's think about that. It's God who causes us to be born again. It's not us who believe and then we are born again. It's God who borns us again and that produces our faith. It's God causes that. And what is that to be? Produce? Blessed be God. Praise be to God because of that. Philippians 2, I didn't finish the passage, beginning in verse 9. Therefore also God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. What lifted Jesus up so high to receive all this worship and praise? It's the very fact that He crucified on the, was crucified on the cross. His cross-bearing lifted him up for praise and adoration. The picture of worship in heaven. Revelation 5.12 Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. When you hear the word Lamb referring to Jesus, it's talking about His slaughter. It's talking about His crucifixion. It's talking about the death on the cross. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Praise to God because of Christ was crucified. Romans 5.13 To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, to the slaughtered one, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever. It's because of the suffering of His death, Jesus was crowned with glory and honor. Hebrews 2.9 in Colossians 2.12, we're to give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in His inheritance in the saints in life. At the end of the book of Romans, after thinking about the salvation that's in Christ, Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments, unfathomable His ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord became His counselor? Who has given to Him that it might be paid back to Him again. From Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Why? To Him be glory because of His great salvation plan which He accomplished in Christ. Response to salvation. We are, we are to be living sacrifices. Romans 12.1 Present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy sacrifice, acceptable God, which is our spiritual service of worship. The cross calls us to live lives of worship. Okay. Did I go fast, guys? Uh, you know, the notes will come to you in email. If you're not on that email distribution list, you'll get it, you can look at it on the web. Everything will be out there. I did that. And so I knew full well that, you know, if there's some applications I said today that you, it's probably going to miss. Go over your head just in the, in the wave. You know what? What I gave to you was a wave surge. <clears throat> we went down to help these people in Pascagoula, Mississippi, helped rebuild their homes, helped, helped try there. And the issue was, the place had never flooded before, but it was a wave, wave surge, right? The ocean, two miles away from the shore, came up and surged and swamped their house for eight hours, then came back, caused all that destruction. I just gave you all a wave surge, <sighs> causing perhaps a lot of destruction or application in your life. And I just say, you know what, maybe pick one thing this week that says... That's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to chew on. That's how I'm going to apply this. 
But don't miss my point. I preached the entire New Testament and said this. The cross is everywhere in the New Testament. Everything that we do, everything that we think, every, it all comes from the cross of Christ because that is the center of history. And so don't lose that main point amidst all the wave of application. I purposely overwhelmed you today. I purposely spoke fast because I'm telling you, I didn't come close to exhausting everything in the New Testament. There is so much there. But all brings us back to the cross. My six applications, live a new way. Live confidently. Live close to God. Live by faith, not by flesh. Live as Christ lived and live worshipfully. Let's pray. Oh Lord, You know that I have flooded these people. I thank You for their patience and their kindness. God, to think long and hard about these things and I know the fruit that it will bear in the soils of their souls. And so I pray, Lord, that as they are overwhelmed, may they be overwhelmed with the the crucial role of the cross of Christ in all the New Testament applications to our lives. May that be a reality. And I think as they understand that, O Lord, they will boast only in the cross. They will trust only in the cross. They will remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. And I pray, as I prayed earlier, for the hundred different hearts in this room. You touch each of them differently according to the need of the moment, according to all the things that were said, according to all the particular applications of the cross in their life. Convict them of sin or bless them in the forgiveness that's in Christ by faith. So stir their hearts, God. So stir their, stir their hearts to see of the, the glorious news of the gospel of grace. Amen.